Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Hello to Foibles. This is Frida and Zoe. Welcome back. Yeah, we're excited today. This is a, one of the, our long projects. We've done a number, if you go back and look at our um, playlist, we've done a number of long projects interspersed with shorter ones. And we try to do that for you because um, that way we can come out monthly and be very regular about it and it gives us a chance to do some real research on the on our longer bigger projects and then the shorter ones tend to be you know things that we already know about pretty well because uh, we have like our graphic novel uh, podcast was just one but Zoe knows a lot about it and I knew some about it and so we were able to just to kind of sit down do a little bit of research and quickly talk but our Marilyn Monroe that was a, probably our most epic series to date, I think. Oh, absolutely. And then Errol Flynn and Marlene Dietrich, kind of our, our movie Hollywood ones, where we really like to try to be very complete in the research. And we watch so many movies. Yeah, you should see this jacket I was embroidering or um, sewing patches and whatnot onto like jackets during some of the more like arduous... Boring, <laughs> terrible movie Stretches. And uh, I made mom this jacket that's just covered in like flower patches and stuff <laughs> and it's probably what like the, maybe like 30 40 hours of work and when i say short i mean long and when i say long i mean very long <laughs> right because <laughs> we talk a lot well, i hope you enjoy it uh, we, we really try to um get the uh to the, the meat of the yeah thing. to get to the essence of it to get to the gist and not just make it like uh, there's some very very popular podcasts with you know Hundreds of thousands of listener, listeners, and I feel they're entertaining, but they do just really skate on the surface and don't really, they just, oh, I like this, and oh, remember that scene, and oh, that was really cool when they did that, and you know, I mean, we try to really get to the underpinnings of everything, so. That's like the high tea of podcasts, whereas we're like roasting like a whole boar over a spit. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's us. So we're going to do that again here today with, with our uh, podcast on Val Luton. Now, Val Luton might be very well known to anybody who likes older films, but maybe you've never heard of this person. And I, I you know, it's a name that I've always kind of known. There's something rather mellifluous about it, Val Luton. I don't see doing just Luton yeah. or Val. When I heard it, I would always picture that it was spelled L-U-T-E-N. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's spelled L-E-W-T-O-N. But it is very melodic. It is. And I, uh, anyway, Val Luton, it was a producer of, I guess what today we would call genre films. They would call them B-horror flicks back in the, in the day, in the 40s when he was producing. And uh, this is a departure for us because we're not talking about uh, a writer or an actor we're talking about a producer, which is a very different kettle of fish. And I've always known this name, and I saw the, his films, things like uh, films that are pretty famous, like uh, Cat People, Curse of the Cat People, I Walked with the Zombie, and I don't think I really got them when I saw them. Uh, I saw them, I was pretty young when I saw them, and I thought, oh, you know, they're old, they're kind of creaky, I 
kind of don't get. Yeah, yeah, it was all right, you know. Eh. And watching, rewatching them this time, I'm so glad that I did because I really enjoyed some of them so much. They really deserved a much greater appreciation than I was giving them. And we'll talk about this during the podcast. So as part of this, I want to make sure that we once again give you the warning that we will spoil any and everything that we think is uh, germane to the conversation. So if you haven't seen the films and want to see them first, or at least see the cream of the crop and the best ones, look at the show notes. We've listed our top, well, we listed our top three, but number three, we didn't agree on. So basically we listed our top four. And those four are the ones that are really, you really should see if you want to see any films of Val Luton's. What about you, Zoe? Did you ever hear Val Luton before I brought this up? So I'd never heard the name before or never recognized the name before, but I had heard for sure the title I Walked With a Zombie and had always been kind of like, that's such a weird title. <laughs> it's really weird, even for like old for old movies or modern movies. It's like a whole phrase, but it's it's so weird. Like, I don't even know how that title came about, but um, I'd heard that before, and I think I'd r- recognized that there was something that was supposed to be interesting about it. And then I think someone told me that it was based loosely on Jane Eyre. Yeah, I told you that. Yeah, you had maybe someone else did before, and that intrigued me. And I was like, "What? There can't be anybody Could this else possibly who would tell be? you that information." <laughs> what? I hang out with film people. <laughs> you know, I'm teasing. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm trying to assert my ascendancy as a, as the mom, as the movie mom. <laughs> I'm kidding. But yeah, I really went pretty much went into it blind. I don't know what prompted you to suggest that, and that I it rang some really distant, dim bell in my mind, and I said, "Sure, that sounds good." That's a good question. I know that I decided that I would rewatch. No, I haven't seen this movie in a long time. I'll rewatch it. It's a classic. And then I started listening to a podcast called "The Secret History of Cinema." by this uh, really, really great podcaster named Adam Roach. I think it's Roach, or it's R-O-C-H-E. And he's quite a personality. He's British, quite a funny, witty uh, guy. But he also is, does amazing, deep research. And I did listen to the podcast for our Val Luton podcast. He did a six-part series on Val Luton that was just hours and hours and hours. So if you're really into it, I didn't put it in the show notes because it might age. Usually what he does is he does a series and then when the next series comes out, he puts the prior series behind a paywall. So if I put it on there, then later on, somebody might try to find it and be frustrated because they can't find it. Um, But that was a, a great resource. Anyway, I started listening to that. And at the same time, I've been thinking about watching some of the movies and I realized, oh, um, Let's. I'm gonna watch uh, Curse of the. I'm gonna watch Cat People, not Curse of the Cat People. First one was Cat People, and you happen to be home, and says, "Hey, you wanna watch this with me?" And I said, "Sure, okay." And we watched it, and and I I really liked it much more, and you really liked it. I thought, "Hey, let's do it," because the Val Luton filmography is not terribly long. It isn't like say I don't know Marlene Dietrich or Errol Flynn, where we we watched like thirty plus movies. Yeah, thirty forty movies for that. Oh my gosh. Uh, this one, he, he only, of course, now I don't have the number at the tip of my tongue, but he did four, I think it was 14 films. He produced 14 films. That was doable, especially since all the films were between one hour and one hour and 10 minutes long. Extremely watchable. So we probably did this over the course of maybe it's been like three months, yeah. four months. Well, yeah. I mean, for us, that's not too bad. So 
we'll see how long this one is. Hopefully it will either be long or very long. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that you will um, talk about as you go into depth about these things is the role of of a producer. Because as you said, it's unusual. We usually do actors who are very concrete and easy to see in their contributions and, and everything. And I think some of the people listening to us, me included, are not, we might watch a lot of movies, but we're not super informed about the process of making movies to that degree. So I hope you'll like talk a lot about the role of producer. And Yeah, and that's an interesting point because the more I read, and I'm not an industry insider, so it isn't coming from inside, but from the more I read, I think the it's clear that the role of the producer is fluid, is very fluid. It depends on the person. Some producers, as we'll see as we go forward, that Val Luton had to work with were money men. And these were all men So in that, at that time. Uh, and today, the men and women who do it are uh, can just be money people. Basically, it is the job of the producer to do the budget and to allocate the budget and to make the deals, like if you're going to pay an actor something in particular uh, to negotiate that and to do those negotiations. So they really are the, the business people of the film. In addition to that, though, there are a lot of people who become producers who had been actors, had been directors, or just were very artistic people. Or like Val Luton, he was a novelist before he became a producer. And they bring an artistic level to it, too. Uh, Because the producer holding the purse strings is the person who says, no, I'm not going to pay for that. Or yes, I'll pay for that. And if someone doesn't have an artistic sensibility or understand artists, they can just hamstring a production by refusing to pay for something that really is necessary for the vision to come to life and for it to be a really great production. Uh, Also, they're the person who can try to go out and get more money to pay for these things. So that is the role, the money side of the producer and the impact that has on the artistry. Now, in Val Luton's case, um, he was, like I said, a writer. So every script, although he had script writers, he read and rewrote every script on his films. So he had a very huge hand on what was actually said and done on screen because he actually was a script writer for the productions. And then there are directors, and maybe Val Luton was one of them, who has a lot of ideas about direction. And, oh, you know, well, we don't want to do coverage. We don't want to do extra shots here. I don't want to pay for that. Or, gee, I, I, I don't want you to shoot it that way. Or, we need to have a fight scene here. Or, you know, they can really kind of get in there. Also, producers look at the uh, rough, uh, the dailies, as they call them, the shots that were done that day, and can uh, tell the, uh, the director, um, this stinks, or you need to do it this way, or I don't like that, and have a very strong hand in what happens. It totally depends on the dynamic. It depends on the power of the actors. Are they big A-list actors who have a lot of power? And we'll see that that coming into play in Val Luton's later career. Or is it a director who has a lot of power and says, no way, I'm not doing it. You're just here to service my vision and you get me the money I need. I'm doing it my way. Um, It can be, as in the case of Val Luton's early films, where the producer and the director are hand in glove. They have the same vision. They want the same things and they complement each other. So one person has the idea, the other person is supporting it in some way. So there, there is that. It's all about the politics, if you will, of the, the power levels of the various players. And in Val Luton's day in particular, you had another layer, and that is the studio system and the studio bosses and who the studio bosses are going to back, who they're going to support, 
and then that gives you the power on set to make the decisions. So essentially, just very bare and diagrammatically, the producer is kind of at the top in terms of they're the money person and they're the, the person who has the biggest meta role. The director is the person who's the sort of the artistic director and they're the ones who was crafting the film and has the eye and the vision along with the cinematographer and probably other people depending on who they are, the set designer. And I just want to bring those people in because we forget about them as viewers and their artistry and contributions to film are amazing. The sound, the sound person, amazing. And then, you know, kind of under that, if you will, not in terms of importance, but there is all the other people who do the other things, the actors and, and the other people who are contributing to it. Um, so there's kind of the pyramid structure of the meta viewpoint, but that's very, very fluid. So essentially, as relating to Val Luton, as producer, he worked within the studio system. He was, uh, for the most part of his career, a producer at RKO, which is a, uh, a company that no longer exists. It ended up winking out and going into bankruptcy, uh, but it was very vital during the 1940s. And he was in their low-budget, genre, B-list movie-making um, cycle. And the way the studios worked is very interesting. There was the A-list and there was the B-list. And there were the, the high prestige, expensive films. And then there were the cheap, churn them out, low budget, what we might even have called grindhouse type of movies that were genre. They were horror. They were thriller. They were that kind of thing to you know give you a little, little excitement. And they would play kind of like records would. There's the A-side and the B-side. So the A-side would be like a Gone with the Wind or a a dark Victory or one of those kinds of films. And the B-side would be Cat People, I Walked with a Zombie, um, Frankenstein. Well, actually, Frankenstein and Dracula really ended up being A-side. They were so successful. But I won't get into that because that's not germane to our Val Luton story. So anyway, he worked in that niche there. And, and in a way, was kind of stuck there. And I put that in quotes because he... He wanted to get out, and he wanted to become a prestige director, but he was really... Director or producer? I'm sorry, producer. Sorry, said the wrong word, producer there. Uh, but he really flowered there. It's a very interesting thing. It's sort of like being squeezed in by the strictures of and the limitations of working in the, in the B level seemed to really bring out his creativity and, and help him to work with other directors and actors and writers in, in such a way that they really they really all brought out the best in each other. And we'll talk about more specifics there. But I guess maybe where we should start before I jump into that is to just give a little bit of Val Luton's background because his personality and his psychology were so integral to what he created, as with really any artist, obviously. He wasn't the businessman. He was really more of the artist, and he made himself work on the money side because he ended up being a producer but he really was uh, I think an artist at heart a writer a visionary and a very interesting person and so his background is, is very fascinating so basically Val Luton was a of Russian extraction and he was an immigrant as a child along with his mother and his birth name well I should say first of all he was born in Russia in 1904, so before the USSR, before that we had the Russian Revolution, 
it's fascinating stuff. Uh, and it really, his background is so important in the development of his films and what he, the vision that he brought to his films in terms psychologically and um, through his, I guess, the intensity of his personality that was, I think, really um, brought on a lot by his, his the way he was raised because it was a very artistic and intense um, education that he had. Um, so Val Luton was born, let's see, he was born in Imperial Russia before the Russian Revolution in 1904, and his birth name was, let's see if I can say it, Vladimir Ivanovich Hofschneider. And he uh, was born to a, a businessman, and uh, his mother uh, was uh, the daughter of a pharmacist. So they were very middle class, really pretty standard. And for whatever reason, his mother decided when he was about five that she'd had enough, and she left the father and moved to Berlin. And so they lived in Berlin for a while. Now, this would be Berlin uh, pre-war, pre-World War One Berlin. So it would have been very rich and uh, diverse and and when I say diverse I mean there were a lot of Jews there there were a lot of Christians there uh, there were a lot of uh, cosmopolitan a lot of other Europeans there so when I say diverse I'm not talking really globally diverse but that really had a lot of cosmopolitan point of view uh, Berlin was really a fantastic city at the time and so Luton and his mother and his uh, sibling lived there for a while and then they ended up going to the United States I think primarily the reason is because his mother his mother's name she was called Nina her name was actually Anna but she just was always called Nina. So he, with his mother Nina and his sibling, moved to the United States primarily because Nina's sister and Val's aunt was a famous movie star, became a famous movie star. She came from Russia uh, during the silent days and her name was Ala Nazimova, her screen name. And Ala Nazimova was, uh, well, how can one describe her? She was larger than life. She was a stage actor and a screen actor, silent screen actor. She knew and was very close with so many really important people of the stage and screen, uh, screen, including particularly, I think, who we would remember today, Rudolph Valentino. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know. Lo I love that guy. He he was he was hot. He was at hot at the time. He was hot at the time. I think he's still hot. Yeah, yeah. I still enjoy watching him. I still think he's a he's a fine piece of masculinity. Anyway. So anyway, Ala Nazimova was living in Hollywood at the time. She was working silent films. She was well-to-do. And so the family moved there because they really didn't have any other prospects. And that was interesting because the Nina became, first of all, a housekeeper. Kind of, She kind of ha helped run the house, but she also had her own job. Which, again, Val was surrounded by women who were self-sufficient, self-supporting. So he was really around strong women all his life. And his mother went to work at, at the studios, at the Hollywood studios, as a writer, as a screenwriter. And uh, so she worked there, and Val and his sibling lived with Ella. They lived in the house, in the, in the mansion. And really an interesting, very storied life. Ala Nazimova was, well, here's, I think this can maybe give you a picture of her. She smoked cigarettes and those long holders, right? And she wore those long, like, uh, 19, 19s, uh, robes and fancy Art Deco clothes and had feathers in her hair and larger-than-life character. At one point, um, someone came over, I believe it was, oh, when Val was wanting to get married and his, I think it was his prospective future in-law came over to the house and met Allah. And Allah was sort of like lounging on a chaise 
And, uh, you know, having cocktails probably in the afternoon. I don't know what she was doing, but she was just very, and she was just insufferable. And as she was leaving, she said to uh, somebody, oh, that woman. And Nazimova hears her and she shouts back with her Russian accent, I'm not that woman. I am the woman. (laughs) (laughs) Truly the Madame of Hollywood. Yes. And she had a huge white, yellow rose garden that she cherished, and she actually would go out and garden in it. And um, and Val came in, and he was a holy terror, you know, running around and talking, and he he would like dance and sing, and he would recite poetry, and you know, he was just like this kind of ADD kind of kid almost, you know, kind of classic, right? And he would go in, and he would like trample in a rose garden, and she was pretty. I mean. You know, coming from Russia, old school, Nazimova was pretty disciplinarian in terms of, you know, smack him good and get angry and she'd be big and towering and all of this. And then alternately she would be in, enveloping and warm and loving and oversized, you know, everything was oversized with her. So he lived in that environment. So he had a lot of love and a lot of, I don't know, some people might consider it abusive discipline, but... It was it was rough rough discipline being a little bit ruled and oppressed as a child. Yeah, and loved and and loved at the same time, so that's that cre- that can create an interesting tension. And and Luton was very famously neurotic throughout his life. He was very very neurotic, and um, so anyway, he lived in this household with this great star, and as his, his as his aunt, and he himself was. An outside, became kind of an outsized personality in his own way. I think he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way as he got older uh, through his uh, his willfulness. Another important point about Nazimova is that she was well known to be of the sisterhood, as they would say, uh, lesbian. It was pretty open, but also hidden from the public because it was obviously, for those of you who, who are not aware, was completely unacceptable uh, to the normal public. And so they called that the celluloid closet, is people who were in the in the movie business and in the closet. And there were a lot of, of people who gravitated there who were, uh, who were gay. And um, because there was within the community a pretty good level of acceptance, and you could pretty much be who you were. And Nizimova would have many beautiful women come over and, and be her lovers and so forth. But ultimately she did marry a fellow, and, you know, who knows what was went on in the relationship, but they were married for a few years. And he what tried to take Val in hand and didn't work very well, and Val hated him. And so Val ended up going to military school for a little while. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was just a crazy childhood. But ultimately, when he got to be around 16, he was in high school, and he... Um, would go out, he didn't like sports, and he would go out on the basketball court, and he would start declaiming poetry, and <laughs> and, and they would have to drag him off, and wow. he was declaiming poetry, and <laughs> he was that kind of guy. And and then when he was, uh, um, he was 16, he met his the woman who had become his wife. Oh, I, oh, I'm sorry, you know what, I'm going to have to go back. I left a little bit out here that he was born Hofschneider and you're going, well, then why is he called Val Luton? It's because when they uh, left his father, his mother uh, took back her uh, maiden name, which was Leventon. And then they sort of shortened it to Luton. And so he's Vladimir Luton, which became Val Luton. 
Okay, so sorry about that. I left that little bit out. Gotcha. A little nugget. Yeah, it's nice. Mom taking back her maiden name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah going, I'm done with it. I don't know what that guy did, but there was some problem right. there. Yeah. Okay, so so he, he was also a, a boy of, a mama's boy. Yeah, he was a single, a child of a single, single parent, single mother. And so what happened is, and I think this comes through in his choice of wife in his marriage. Uh, when he was 16 or so in military school, he first met his wife, Ruth, and they, you know, just brief in passing. But then a few years later, when he was about 18, he came back and uh, they met for reals, you know, and they really had a chance to talk. And this is very interesting because Ruth was a, an intelligent, well-educated um self-directed woman she was a woman of her time she was conventional so she wasn't somebody who was going to go out and you know be an artist or be a businesswoman but she definitely was uh, someone that you would really like to have a discussion with I think she sounded very intelligent to me and anyway Val met her and he just it was sort of like Dante and Beatrice this second time he saw her she just became the one for him he decided that she was the one well she was this is odd but they had kind of an arranged marriage. Her parents did this arranged hmm. marriage because her parents were very wealthy and very well-to-do uh, Christians. And Val, even though his family had converted to Christianity, his background was as was, uh, as a Jew. So he had been born Jewish. And the parents knew this somehow. I don't know, but they knew it. And so the anti-Semitism kicks in here. And Ruth... Uh, he, he pursues Ruth, and the family doesn't want her to be have anything to do with him, doesn't want her to have anything to do with him, and Ruth is kind of drawn to him. I mean, how can he not be? He's really, he's decided she's the one. So it isn't, I don't know, maybe today people would consider it stalkerish, but I think he, she just took it as persistence. He, he would write to her. He would write to her three times a day wow. from military school or whatever. He'd write her these letters, and she kept them all. And it sounds like they were very beautiful, loving letters. And he would get her alone and they, so they could talk and they'd spend hours talking. And the parents... That sounds mutual, so I wouldn't call that stalker. Well, she was a little bit reluctant. I mean, he was all in and she she was two toes in. Well, I don't know, maybe. But yeah, I mean, she, he didn't drag her against her will. But he was very persistent and she mm. wasn't sure and she kind of resisted a little bit. But he kept up the... the, the I would say pressure intensity intensity yeah. and so she finally kind of began to crumble and it was uh, and then of course she said oh yeah you know I, I like him and basically when um, finally uh, she knew she couldn't she didn't love this other guy anyway I mean it was just set up by her parents because it was a great match it was sort of like two fortunes and he's Christian and he's got all the he's in the right country club and all that stuff right and so she ended up deciding that he was the one, and they decided to get married. And so, you know, Val's family was fine with this. They loved Ruth. But he, she went to tell her family about it. It was a horrific scene. The family, they, just the upshot, without going into details, one of the reasons they didn't like Val is because he, he didn't have any profession. He was young. He hadn't established himself. He had been like a newspaper reporter for a while, and uh, he ended up getting fired because he made up a story about all these chickens dying of heat prostration in a truck, and they printed it, <laughs> and he just made it up. Because <laughs> he was just more into a good story than he was into. 
or I love the truth within the story, which is not actually the literal truth. Right. And maybe he also just um, didn't have a good story, and he was maybe he was lazy. I don't know. I don't know why, but he did it, and they found out, and he got fired, and so. He was going around trying to make a living, and he didn't have any money himself. And so they didn't like that. Uh, but they also didn't like the fact that he had been Jewish and was ethnically Jewish. And so they and they really didn't like it, which is just shocking to me, that they told her, we will cut you off. We will never speak to you again if you marry him. Well, you know, Ruth obviously married him what better way to drive someone into you know the arms of their lover right partially yeah partially and well you don't care about me clearly yeah this person really cares about me so right so they get married and and they have their uh and they have a tiny little apartment and they're poor you know they're poor and the thing is is after the beautiful wedding night the next morning her mother calls her up and says something like you know you've killed me that, and then she says, I won't repeat, but she says anti-Semitic slurs. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then Ruth was, on the day after her wedding, she's, like, crying. Oh, God. I know. That sucks. It really does. Horrible. But, you know, Val Luton strikes me as, he was not an easy character. He was very tempestuous. He was very neurotic. Uh, but he was very also very hardworking, and he was going to take care of his family. He was going to figure it out. And this was the conventional time where the husband took care of the family and the wife took care of the home. And that's what they adhered to. And they ended up having two children very quickly. And um, Lee, I don't, from what I have heard and read, Ruth never regretted it. Ruth loved him intensely, even if she was mad at him, even, you know, even if they couldn't agree, even if he was being a butt. She loved him, and it never was against her. I mean, he was not a bad husband to her. He was just a difficult person. And he loved her so much that even after they got married, instead of writing her three times a day, he only wrote her four to five times a week. Oh, <laughs> I know. That's really sweet. And they were never really apart. It wasn't like he went off traveling for months at a time. Right. Yeah. He just wanted to tell her about stuff at the office or whatever. Well, no, he'd tell, he would tell her how much he loved her. <laughs> I know, and I know. In and in the in the if you get a chance, if you if, if it's still up, in the secret history of cinema, the podcaster reads excerpts from the letters, and they are lovely, and they're not insipid. They really are original works because they really are imagery and feelings coming from his heart. So that is that's just so tender and sweet. And he listened to her. Um, you know, didn't always agree, didn't always do what you wanted him to do, but he listened to her, they talked. I mean, they really had a, a loving partnership, which I think just speaks so well to what he was able to create out of his life. And that, you know, his up- upbringing with these powerful women, even if he felt oppressed at times, was salutary because he chose a strong woman to be his partner and was able to stay with her and be with her. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that a lot. And then the only other thing really about the, the family that I want to get into at this time is his first child was his daughter, and they named her Nina after her grandmother. And Nina was born prematurely and apparently um, almost almost died. I mean, it was critical condition. And this is way back in the early 40s, I mean, maybe even late 30s. So there was not the best medical in the world. But they did have such things as transfusions, but they didn't have blood banks back then because it really wasn't until later that they determined how they could preserve and save blood in a blood bank. 
So basically it was person to person. You had to find somebody with your blood type and the person would lie there next to you and they would put tubes in your arms and they would transfuse the blood right there. And that's what they had to do. And they found out that his blood type was the same as Nina's. So it was his blood that saved Nina's life. Hmm. And so it was a very, very close call. But uh, apparently Nina was seen as being very tenacious. She and her father later would just butt heads and I mean, when she was very little, she, and she was very self-determined and aggressive in her will and her willfulness. And Luton had a little bit of trouble with that, and they would they had a lot of conflicts later. But deep, deep love as well. There were some rough patches there. It's like she was too much like him, essentially. And then he had his son Val Jr. And Val Jr. It sounds like Val. I, I don't know. I could be wrong, but it sounds like he was a pretty sunny kid, pretty sweet. Pretty easy, you know, very artistic. He became an artist. So he's the one that a lot of memories of his father come from. And then Ruth lived a long time after Val died. And, and he died in, at the age of 46 in 1951. Very young, very early. And Ruth lived for many decades after him. And so historians and so forth were able to get a lot of information. And that's where they got the letters from. Anyway, that's a little bit about the early history of Val Luton. And then what happened finally is Val really had to have a job. So his mother, who was a writer at the studio, helped him get a job at the studio as a writer. So he ended up being able to go there and um, make some money. It wasn't a ton of money, but it was enough to feed the family, which is, you know, kind of really what he wanted. At the same time, he was also uh, writing novels. And in 1932, it's very interesting, he wrote, a be- I guess, a best-selling novel called No Bed of Her Own. It was one of those pulp novels. So in 1932, he wrote this novel. And, and he obviously, a best-selling novel then, a pu- best-selling pulp novel, did not make the amount of money that a best-selling novel makes now when we're talking uh, Harry Potter, right? So he made some money out of that, but not enough to really make his career as a novelist. He didn't continue to pump out the bestsellers. So, But No Bed of Her Own, I actually ordered it. And did you read part of it? Not yet. I read part of it, and I, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like the... I don't know. I, I just didn't think it was that great. And I didn't like the characters. Nobody was somebody that I could... They were just kind of willfully irritating and, and unpleasant. Hmm. So, sorry. <laughs> Is it a, like a mystery or what kind of... It's a, well, actually, the good, good question. It's a very interesting book because it is about a self-willed, directive woman during the Depression, and actually more than one woman, but one woman is the lead, who do what they need to do. And what they need to do is trade sexual favors for money. I mean, they also, you know, may work in a department store or have other jobs as well. But they, they're not what we would consider the standard picture of a sex worker. They're, they're just w- regular sort of working class, middle class women trying to survive during the Depression. And so his, his depiction of them is very sympathetic, very understanding, and just very practical, Hmm. You know, so there's no moral judgments that he's putting on these women, which again shows his level of understanding. And I, I wouldn't even say sympathy with women because that also creates otherness. I think it's just as empathy. These yeah. are these are just people, hmm. and these are people in situations, and these are the these are the social and economic impacts on these people, psychological impacts, whatever. And so, that is really one of the best things about Luton's films is that out of all the films that are being made in Hollywood at this time, 
his are most consistently just dealing with women as human beings and to some extent minorities as human beings. They're just people in these situations. And you see that in this novel too. But you you can uh, you know take a look at the novel and see if, if you think yeah, it's I'm interesting or not. Yeah, it it is interesting. I just I don't know. I didn't I didn't enjoy the the characterization. It, it didn't speak to me. I, I didn't I didn't dislike it on any kind of particular grounds. It's just it wasn't enjoyable for me to read. That's all. The novel was popular enough that it got picked up to be filmed, and it was made into a movie called No Man of Her Own with uh, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. Oh, interesting. That's yeah. That's big, A-list. Big stars, yeah. Yeah, that's A-list stuff there. Um, so, obviously, but, again, unlike today, your remuneration for that kind of thing didn't wasn't nearly as high as it as it is today, uh, where somebody, if they got a book deal like that and a movie made, would have made a lot of money. So that was his writing career, but really where we want to go is we want to get into this film and get to his movies. So he ended up getting a job uh, working at MGM, where his mother worked, and he became the right-hand man of David O. Selznick. Now, I don't know if you know David O. Selznick, but David O. Selznick was a producer. Now, he was, like, if Val Luton was B-level, David O. Selznick was, like, the head of the studio producer. So his... His films were like, I mean, he oversaw all the films, but the films that he really cared about, that he was really, really in charge of, were the top blockbuster movies, including Gone with the Wind. Okay, yeah. Big guy. Big guy. So uh, Luton learned so much from him and worked for him. And, of course, Selznick's a difficult personality, but he's also really a great producer. And he made a lot of, of amazing films. A couple of them, let's see, were there was a, a Tale of Two Cities that they made with Ronald Coleman. Kind of like that film. I recommend that. Hmm. Um, so that was a big film made out of the Charles Dickens book. There was another one called Tars Bulba, which I have not seen, but that one was a, a big, a big, big film. And then, of course, really the one you can only talk about, Gone with the Wind, which was like, wasn't that like the the highest grossing movie or for? And for and, and today, long? if you if you if you adjusted for actual income or actual inflation inflation it might be the high it might still be the highest it might even be more than a billion i don't know if you take because back when you know you would go in and you'd pay 10 cents for a ticket versus paying 20 12 to 15 dollars or whatever for a ticket i don't know but i wouldn't be surprised it comes from a novel in case people don't know this already called gone with the wind and it was a blockbuster novel. I mean, huge, 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 huge novel. Uh, you just can't even... It's like Harry Potter, like when they came out. People lining the streets to get it the first day it comes out and everything. Huge. And it was also considered a little bit racy. I know that people were saying that people I know, their mothers or grandmothers... Oh, oh our, our great aunt. Mm-hmm. Your great aunt, my aunt, who's 93. She was, she was young. She was a teenager when it came out, or a young teenager. And she wanted to read it, and she had a, she got it from somebody, and she had it hidden under her bed, and her mother found it and burnt it. Right. Yeah, she did <laughs> share that anecdote with us. Yeah. It was considered racy because, are there sexual undertones to it, or because she hangs out with this guy that she's not married to? or I don't, I don't really know. It's hard for me to, to cast back, and I haven't huh. read it. I don't know. Maybe it's all good. I don't know. It's problematic in terms of its depiction of race because it was written by a Southerner. And yeah, it's very pro-South, very... Yeah, it is. It's very pro-South, very pro-Old South. Right. And, okay, we're, we're digressing. Yeah. This is going to be a long one. Sorry, gang. 
But I'm sure you want to know about Gone with the Wind in case you don't. And I don't know, do people of your generation know about Gone with the Wind? I mean, it's it's only present it. in in the general cultural milieu. Yeah, everybody's heard of it. I don't I I don't have an accurate idea of how many people in my peers have actually watched it. it I don't is. even know. I, everybody knows about it, but have but they don't know anything about the history. Kind of, of like the novel. Marilyn Monroe. Like everybody knows Marilyn Monroe. Everyone's seen her iconography, uh, pop art of Marilyn Monroe and stuff. But not I I actually don't think that many people have actually watched a Marilyn Monroe film. So in 1939, the film was made, but Margaret Mitchell had written this book, um, pro- obviously prior to that, and she was a Southerner, a white Southerner, and she definitely had a feeling for the old South, uh, antebellum South, and so I like the movie, but you do have to kind of squint your eyes a little bit at some of the racial depictions and the attitudes toward the Old South just by, by the mere fact of it's being graced, it's being elevated as this very fine thing. And you have to know the basis of that was slavery. And so you kind of got to go, okay, I'll just squint and accept that that's that point of view without absorbing it myself. I mean, it's much like the romanticization of like, I don't know, feudal uh, sort of like nobility and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's kind of apologist. Like, I think there's a couple black characters in it who are like, oh yes, I love my servitude. Yeah. So anyway, Margaret Mitchell was, uh, you know, upper class elite white Southerner who wrote this book. It was, um, and I haven't read the book, so I can't speak to what's in it, but she, uh, the book was so popular, so popular that there were bidding rights and she probably got paid more than anybody ever got paid because now we're talking about a real bestseller. And uh, it got it was going to be made into a movie, and David O. Selznick was the producer. He's the one who finally got his hands on it. And it, there became it became a nationwide search to find out who would play the Rhett and Scarlet. And there there actually are I think you can see them on YouTube screen tests of various actors. I don't know if the the male actors, but the female actors doing their screen tests for Scarlet. So Paulette Goddard. Betty Davis was considered, a lot of people were considered until finally Vivian Lee, who was a British actress, which I think really, huh. really made people mad. She got <laughs> cast. And of course, ultimately Clark Gable. I mean, he was really the only one. There were other people who were considered, but they were too old at the time. Like Warner Baxter was too old. He was a, an older silent screen star and so forth. So they, they picked the perfect pair, I think, to, to do this film. It would have been really interesting to see Betty Davis do it, though. Oh my gosh, she would have... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she would have been really... That would have made a movie an entirely different film. Oh, completely different. That would have been so interesting. Uh, anyway, she... Uh, the, so the film was being made uh, while Val Luton was the uh, assistant to David O. Selznick. And so that was very interesting. He helped a lot with it. And the really interesting part is, for those of you who've seen the film, there's a fantastic scene where Scarlett is looking to find uh, the wounded... I think, it's, I think she's looking for Ashley, because Ashley's the one she loved. Uh, looking for him among the wounded soldiers. And so she goes to, it's like an outdoor holding space for, because they didn't have enough room in hospitals or inside for all these wounded men. And so she went to the, I think it was the train station, and they're all lying, and she's walking through rows of men, and the camera pulls back and back and back, and and the flood and the view of, the bodies lying, it just goes off into the distance and back to see the enormous number of wounded. And Scarlet is like a little tiny ant moving among them trying to look for Ashley. It's an amazing scene. That was Val Luton. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that, that was his contribution. He wrote that scene. 
just a precursor of things to come, a little taste. Yeah, nothing that grand ever again, though. True. His <laughs> <laughs> magnus opum, actually. Yeah, exactly, in terms of uh, the, the large largeness. So anyway, he worked for quite a while um, for Selznick and learned a lot. And, and, and Selznick actually, uh, even though he was a, a very intense personality, he, he liked Val, and he appreciated Val because Val was a hard worker. Val worked. I mean, he was one of those guys, 80 hours a week, 100 hours a week, late into the night, on the weekends. I mean, he was, just, he was a workaholic, really. And when he wasn't working, he was antsy. You know, he liked to go sailing, and he, but he wasn't a golfer. He didn't like to sit on the porch and kick up his heels and have an iced tea, as, as do we. But he... He literally needed to leave the land in order to be able to stop <laughs> thinking about work. Kind of, <laughs> that yeah. That he could be doing. yeah. Yeah, I mean, he would do, like, he sailed. I think that's the only thing I've heard that he did for fun. Otherwise, he would just, if he wasn't working on something, he was very uncomfortable. So, again, that neuroses. So, finally, uh, after he had been working for Salznick for several years, he was noticed, and he got the opportunity to to become the head of the horror unit at RKO Studios in 1942. So, there begins his golden age. And I call this, when I'm watching these films, I call it Phase 1. Of his uh, of his career, phase one is the golden RKO days, and so we we start with his first film um, that he wrote. He worked on this film, Cat People, with the great director Jacques Tourneur. And Jacques Tourneur was new and young and untried at this point. Uh, he but he was the son of Maurice Tourneur, who was a very famous and prolific silent director. So he was really raised it his father's name was you know learned directing uh turner came into um rko and, and worked with luton and luton is, had a very interesting deal that he made when he signed the contract when he came in his bosses said before you sign you have to understand there are three rules to every film that you make and that is that each film will have a budget no greater than $150,000, which was really a low-budget film even back then. Two, that every movie must be under 75 minutes long. And three, that Val Luton would be supplied with a title, and then he would create the movie around the title. I, I assume that this last one was because the title was like the draw Market research. Yeah, going, okay, if we have this title, people are going to want to come and see the see the movie because of this crazy title and also i think in some way they thought well this is a horror unit so we know it's going to be horror but if we give them the title then we will be directing him kind of where he has to go because he's going to have to have something that goes with this title (laughs) ha 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 they didn't know val luton (laughs) he really yeah did an amazing creative license with the titles he did. I, lo- I love what he did. He's very, very funny. He really, uh, he really kicked back against that. And um, so when he started um, there, his, his direct boss, the guy's name is Char- Charles Kerner. So we just kind of kind of keep that in mind. Charles Kerner was uh, really brought Val in, really, you know, believed in him. And um, Kerner didn't have full free reign to let Val do whatever he wanted to do. But he did support Val, and I think that that was one of the reasons that the earlier films were able to be released the way Luton wanted them to be released, and so really, really have the best quality. Because I would, wouldn't you agree that his first films at RKO are, are the best? 
There, yeah, absolutely. Like it's almost directly like first four or five, really good, and then it ex it like sort of goes down a slope from there. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? So that more than anything, that should prove that the more control he had, probably the better he was going to produce to a degree at least. Right. Well, he had control. Yeah, that's true. He but. I also think that the quality of his films decreased because he, he, you know, after that first first period, he was having heart attacks all the time. Mm. He had a bad heart, and he was in the hospital a few times right. for, I guess, extended period, like six weeks. Uh, and he would actually take off time, and he was forced to take off time to rest, and that's when he couldn't stand it. So he went, probably went back to work way too early. His heart wasn't good. He wasn't in good health. So I actually think that had something to do with it. Also, the first few films are the best, I think, because the director is Jacques Turner. That's the best director for what he was doing that he ever worked with, in my opinion. And I think it's their collaboration that makes the, the first couple of films so both otherworldly and gripping and beautiful and stark in so many ways. Yeah. And once he couldn't work with Turner anymore, I, I think the other directors were fine. But they were—they just—they didn't have that extra level of artistry, or or maybe it's an extra level of connection with Luton and his inner life. Because I think that Luton and Turner vibrated together in a certain way, so that they got each other. And in fact, Turner said we complemented each other, so they're like the yin and yang together. Anyway, so here we are. Uh, we are in phase one of Val Luton's film career. We're moving along pretty well here, right? Uh, not talking too much. Yeah, we're an hour in. Shit. <laughs> but there's a bunch you're going to cut. Yeah. The first film that we're going to look at here is, and I'm not going to go into a history of horror, but we will bring in those early horror and how it impacts us. So the first one is Cat People, and that's in 1942, first year he was there. Director Jacques Turner. I'll just note very quickly that it, that it was later remade in 1972 by Paul Schrader, which we didn't rewatch. I did see it. Natasha Kinski plays the the main role, and I don't know. I just think he was an excuse to have her take off her top or something. I don't know. I I don't think that much of the film, but you know, someday we might want to watch it just to see. And in these early films, I really think that Val Luton, if not consciously, there was an unconscious sort of theme that he was working with uh, a sort of a metaphysical theme and this one I really think it's the 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 fear of uh, female sexual autonomy and the power of female sexuality and agency do you agree with that yeah I definitely agree with that there's a lot of levels to the film certainly throughout the first several I also feel strongly that they have a unifying theme which is really like either magic folklore indigenous mm -hmm. intuitive knowledge versus science and Western thinking. And I think that runs through all of them. And, and so in this one, there's um, this girl from Europe and from this like old country city, and she brings in this whole mythology with her. Basically, it's the cat people. Is that certain people, uh, women, if they get sexually aroused, they turn into a lethal cat and they kill people, particularly the man. Right there, the, the analogy. So you're right. It's sort of the impotence of science in the face of the onslaught of the ages-old, dark, collective unconscious, which is embodied in mythology and myth and, and that kind of thing. 
and folklore. So that's really where we are with cat people. So they gave him the title cat people. And what they were really thinking of is they're going, okay, we want you to create a film that is as blockbusterish and thrilling and scary as the universal horror formula. Because Universal Studios had really, uh, in terms of the sound era, had spearheaded horror. Because in 1931, which is really, if you think, it was 11 years before this, but in 1931, Universal came out with the two seminal horror sound films, Frankenstein and Dracula. And we just watched both of these films within the last week or so, two weeks. Um, so... They're fresh on our minds. Well, the, the fact is, is that they, in terms of imagery, they created indelible filmatic language of horror. The bats, the cobwebs, the, the castles, the... Cavernous, yeah, yeah, empty rooms. The look of Frankenstein, the way he looked, uh, the, the movements of, of Dracula and, and, of course, you know, and the cape and, you know, all of that. All of those elements were, were there, and these things were blockbusters. They were huge. Uh, Frankenstein made, made Boris Karloff's career. Karloff, born Edward Pratt, by the way, Boris Karloff was in his 40s, and you know he'd been mildly successful, but, but really hand-to-mouth, just kind of barely making it, until he got this role, and then he became a superstar for the rest of his life, really. And what's so interesting is that Bela Lugosi, who made his hit in Dracula, had been offered the role of Frankenstein, and he turned it down because he didn't want to wear all that makeup and everything and cover that pretty face, you know. <laughs> Thank God he didn't do it, honestly. Yeah. It's a much better film for having Karloff in it. Oh, yeah. Karloff is far the better actor. Well, we, we won't go off too much. We have a lot to say about these films, but we won't. Maybe we'll do some mini episodes later about them. That'd be nice. But they but they were key. And so Universal was wore the crown of horror, and all those years they produced fewer prestige horror films fewer and fewer and fewer until they really were b-level films and they pretty much had a a formula that you can see in a film called the black cat so the black cat is the film that i that they were really thinking of when they gave val luton the title cat people thinking okay we'll we'll kind of get something like this out of him now the black cat was uh filmed in 1941 it was pretty popular stars who does it star our baby. Battle Rathbone! <laughs> we love him. Well, it also star stars Broderick Crawford and a bunch of other people. Ba Basil is just, he's the top build. And he's our favorite. But it has, it has other people in it. Uh, and I have this to film, it's like a murder mystery. It kind of reminded me of Clue the whole time. Yeah, it kind of was like Clue. And it really didn't have, it had a horror in just in as much as it, it gave reference to it. And it had secret stairways that had cobwebs in it. People and, dying. You know. And there's a black cat and there's a, you know, it, it just really had kind of a dusting of horror on it. It really wasn't very horrific at all. But the, these things always had, it was it was an, a real exemplar of what the universal formula had come to be. Because if you, if you look at films of this time, like Man Made Monster or um, a few other ones that I've watched recently, they really are pretty much the same where they have equal parts of suspense, want to call it horror you can call it horror uh, otherworldly weird it can either be otherworldly like folkloric or it can be scientific horror like electricity doing something uh, frankenstein. like frankenstein exactly and comedy and when i i'm, I'm saying comedy loosely because 
This shit is, excuse me, this stuff is not funny <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, very much like Pratt Falls and uh, it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Very tone, sort of, the tone is not regulated. Very no, well. not at all because they, they try to flip from, oh, it's hilariously funny, goofy to dun, dun, dun. And it, it doesn't work very well. And um, this is the film. And it was pretty, it was pretty popular. It was directed by a guy named Albert Rogel. And Albert Rogel um, was a brother of, uh, of Sid Rogel. You'll be hearing about Sid Rogel going forward because Sid Rogel is a producer who becomes Val Luton's boss later and who's constantly trying to get Luton to make a movie like his brother's. And Luton just fights back like you wouldn't believe. Let, let's also add, there is absolutely no depth of psychology, no subtext at all. There are these pretty good actors who are just just have this paper-thin characterizations and dumb plot, right? Yeah, very much a movie that just moves people into rooms and moves them around and gets them to do things in order to create a mystery. And I think that it is really, it's really sad because they seem to think that audience goers are idiots. And really because of the monopoly that the, the studios had over uh, distribution, because they own their own theaters. So if there was a Lowe's theater in your town, it only got movies from a certain from a certain studio. And they they would block sell these things too. So basically, if you wanted Gone with the Wind, you had to commit to buying 104 movies in like a grab bag and you had to just take whatever they gave you. That's wild. I didn't know about that before we started doing this. Yeah. And eventually there was a lawsuit that broke up this monopoly. But th that's why these movies, these cheap and, 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 and runoff movies, made money. Because people would go to see the A-list movie, they pay, and of course, this was the second movie on the, on the bill. And, you know, people wanted to watch movies. So you're stuck with it. You just watch. It's like, it's like TV used to be when I was a kid. There were three channels. And basically... That's you what you what had you to watch. Get, you yeah. take what you can get. And there were so many. That's why I watched Gilligan's Island, which is a terrible show. Because that was the only <laughs> thing that, it, that was the best of the three terrible things that were on TV. So that's really where people were stuck. So Cat People was, as we said, a story about this really beautiful kitten-faced woman. And she was hired because she had this little kitten face. She has such a little kitten face. She it's really in the is. mouth and the little like curling of the mouth. Well, it's also the shape too. Yeah. Her chin is not long. It's very short and kind of like a kitten. And uh, the uh, actor's name is Simone Simone. <laughs> I know, what a name. How <laughs> she named Simone Simone. I never, I never was good with that. But anyway. So anyway, Simone Simone was... She's French. She's French. She speaks with a French accent. She's kind of adorable. She was a, a, a film actor in France and um, she came over to make the big money and try to try to hit the big time, which she never did here. Um, she was her her epithet was the tender savage. <laughs> That's so interesting, <laughs> isn't that good? Yeah. And I think she kind of was, and and it really fits this part. This part kind of is a tender savage because she goes from being this really adorable, sexy little kittenish woman into being black leopard of a killer and literally a black leopard and uh, the brilliance of the film is that you know um, she knows about her history she's frightened of being involved with with man and so she meets this guy named i forget what his name is but the actor is kent smith who's an actor i've never appreciated he always just seemed like a dull kind of you know nice guy or yeah plain stock role plain guy daddy dad kind of bland dad kind of thing and watching this film this time, I'm thinking, gosh, 
that's a really good subtle performance he's giving there. So watch him carefully when you see this. He, anyway, he meets her and he's smitten and uh, he pursues her and she doesn't want to get involved sexually with him because she knows she's going to turn into a deadly cat. Over time, what happens is, well, they get married and then they never have sex. Right. And so over time, he ends up uh, getting interested in and connected with his co-worker. Again, a working woman. She And she's not a secretary. Yeah, she's... She's an architect. They collaborate together. Yeah, they collaborate together. She's not an architect. She's an assistant architect or something. But she's not that secretary role. I will say also, she's a really nice woman. Like, they, they don't get involved and have, like, a cheating thing. No. They're just close and intimate, which was considered cheating at the time, yeah. basically. But she's, like, she's just really nice and she's not jealous. She's not petty or anything like that. No, but she does want him. Right. And she does want him to... And, and then ultimately, she does want to help him get rid of his wife. But, I mean... He needs to because she's going insane. And what's happening is, is then there is a, another character, and he's this. I love this guy. He's a psychologist played by Tom Conway. Tom Conway, for those of you in the know, is the brother of George Sanders. That's all I'll say. He was considered, he was called, actually his nickname was the nice George Sanders because <laughs> he looks so much like his brother, but a much handsomer version of his brother. Um, he's not really a great actor, but he's a really great personality. He's just really charming. Anyway, he ends up, He's a psychologist. He ends up making the moves. And she, I don't know if it's out of self-protection, but she that she turns into the cat? Or is, do you think she is getting sexually excited and therefore, because that's what's supposed to turn her into being a cat. Yeah, I mean, he does kiss her. So it's like literally the physical act that I think that, triggers that, it. That triggers it. Although before this, she has been stalking her husband and her uh, husband's coworker right. as a cat. So I think, which you never see, you know, so... You, at that point in time, you don't know if it's kind of like a stylistic, like stylized rendering of that, but she's been stalking them. So maybe it's her, whenever her passions get excited, whether that's jealousy or... Oh, uh, that makes sense. That, yeah. I, I like that. So basically she ends up killing him as a cat. The, the psychologist. The yeah. psychologist. And in the end, she ends up dying. So just, just to cut to the chase. Yeah, and it's a short film, so it's very simple. And yet it has all this rich, rich themes and rich texture to it. Yes, it does. And and it's it's noir. It's got a beautiful noir feeling. It's so um, black and white shadows. Chiaroscuro is worked really well to hide the fact that you're not seeing the cat, but to evoke the cat, the danger of the cat. At one point, the cat corners um, the husband and the other woman in the office into a corner and they're trying to you know afraid that's going to attack them and, and they're trying to fight it off he has um, like a cross i think yeah that's right the cross and the, and the studio didn't want them to use that they had this religious symbol they didn't want them to put that in there and it isn't really a cross it's a t-square oh right that, that, that architects use but if you hold it up in the shadow it looks like a cross <laughs> and, it, and it scares off the it scares off the cat, and the, the studios didn't want that in there, but but, but Luton insisted, and, and he managed to keep it in, which I think wouldn't make any sense if they didn't have that in there. And there's a wonderful scene in a swimming pool, which is the best scene in the movie, I think. Yeah, I agree. Where uh, the, the, the the female friend, Jane, played by Jane Randolph, uh, she jumps in, she's going for a swim at her, at her club or whatever, and she's swimming along, and the cat, and this is where you know for sure Simone, the tender savage is turning into a cat because she comes in and she's walking around the pool in her high heels and the next thing you know you see this black cat and the black cat when we say cat we actually mean leopard black leopard and the black leopard was uh, played by dynamite if you'd like to know <laughs> yeah <laughs> dynamite Beautiful. 
And dynamite will come up later in the leopard man when they have another leopard. Same, same, same animal actor. Really excellent. One's an air of menace, and yet at the same time, it's pure. Yeah, and beautiful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, this is a side note. That swimming pool scene is really wonderful, and also they use sound to great effect because it's like this echoey space, and you can hear the cats breathing, and it's very freaky. Um, but, uh, you know, the movie It Follows, which we watched together, the mm-hmm. sort of more recent horror film. And oh, I, in the pool. I love That's that right. movie. Yeah, there's, the climax is in a swimming pool, and I just kind of occurred to me. I was like, I wonder if that was a little reference there. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, or an influence. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Highly recommend It Follows. It seems like it is because even though it's in color, there is that echoiness, and there's also the shadow and, and the, the the use of the water uh, scintillating on the walls, the light of the water from the water, mm-hmm. and um, so that's a that's a wonderful scene too, um, and so the film really reflects a fear of this if this woman becomes fully sexual, that she's going to destroy everything everything everyone around her. I think that's very. That's a very interesting examination. That's that seems to be certainly like the f- sexuality is definitely a theme in horror in general. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but how I feel about this one is that I mean Simone Simone the cat she really is the main character and so you really get a sense of conflict. It's not just that she's becoming evil, uh, that she's an antagonist in some way. It's really about being conflicted and being torn apart. Right, and it's almost the jealousy of her of seeing her husband with this woman that really pushes her over, is is the sexual jealousy that she feels. Even though, I mean, which makes sense because it's clear that they they're partnering up, even though they're not actually, you know, cheating. That there's an emotional partnership between them that that is, of the you know, ultimately, they would want to be together. Mm-hmm. And so I I, th- I think it's very interesting. And but they're well suited to each other. Yes. And yeah. neither of them is afraid of sex. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And uh, so, yeah, so when you're watching this, carefully watch, I mean, all of it, but watch Kent Smith and the very, like, just kind of the way he'll turn his body or look or react very subtly to ver- to various things that are happening. And, and, and you can see that he is building an inner life for this character and what this character is feeling. And that's the, that's the demarcation between universal and RKO horror at this time. The fact is, is that Luton builds in a staircase down into the psychology of these characters that those actors can go down and can populate. And universally, universal, it's not possible with what these actors are given. So, um, so of course, Luton also had to have actors who could do that, and he did get actors who could do that. Um, I, I do want to point out a couple of things before we move on about this film, just to watch where that I enjoyed a little, couple little tidbits, and that is Simone. Simone, she got along extremely well with Jacques Turner, well, they're both French, and with Val Luton and everybody, but she did not like women. And was, she really, the only woman she liked was her dresser, the person who helped her, the seamstress and dresser, who actually couldn't sew. <laughs> and couldn't do anything, but she was kept on because she got along with Simone Simone. That's really funny. And she did not like Jane Randolph at all. And apparently during one scene, and I think you'll know what it is, there's a, a, or they're sitting at a table, she purposely knocked a drink over onto Jane Randolph's dress so that she would have to get her costume. go for a costume change. <laughs> That's so vindictive. She really was. I mean, she but she was she was quite fiery. In fact, she she was never able to make it in Hollywood, partially be, because of her inability to get along with people but she also um, 
was hit by a scandal around this time. It was called the Golden Key Scandal. And apparently some yellow journalist or whatever, uh, who knows whether it's true or not, but anyway, uh, made up a story about her because she was known to, to basically sleep with who she wanted to sleep with. Talk about female agency, right? She had lovers and she didn't care. She didn't want to get married. She just wanted to have lovers. And somebody made up a story that, oh, that the person who was her, her lover was given a golden key to unlock her door at her, at her house. <laughs> <laughs> so it became known as the golden key scandal. That's really funny. She should have started doing that. Yeah, That's she should have just, uh, so she ended up going back to France and, and so forth. But um, she was, she was quite a personality. And what was so interesting was that at, during this time also, Val Luton um, saw the film Intermezzo, which uh, the, the Swedish version, and he saw Ingrid Bergman and was just floored by her. And he talked David Oselznik into bringing her over to the United States, and she became wow. the, the huge star that she is. Actually, they never got to work with her. Yeah, it was, well, it was pre-Cat People. Probably if he'd stayed with David Oselznik, he might have been able to work with her, but nah, yeah. She she was not she was no B B list uh, actor. She Although, came in she came in at A list first movie right because they remade Intermezzo in English. Okay, I didn't know that with Leslie Howard, yeah, who was Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind. So it all comes full circle. Everybody's connected, right? Uh, anyway, so I just wanted to put that out there about Val Luton, and then the suits at the studio looked at this and go. I don't get it. This stinks. Is this gonna sell? They hated it. They, nobody's gonna get this. And they didn't. They did, first of all, they didn't want her to die at the end. So oh yeah. So that's what. Yeah, that she, Simone Simone gets speared, and you can finally see her cat body. Right. Yeah. Lying that's the end the, of the movie. <laughs> right. And that's the end. They didn't. They didn't like that. They, they. They just. They didn't like it because it just wasn't what they saw as horror. I don't. I don't think the movie's scary at all. But most movies from this time, they're not scary. But um, I, di- I find it fascinating. I find it beautiful. I find it intense and passionate. Um, and I think Simone Simone is the perfect person to play this role. She really is giving it her all. And um, anyway, they hated it. and They tried to make changes. And luckily, Charles Kerner was on Val Luton's side, supported him. They didn't have to make a lot of changes. They had, I guess they had to do a few things, but it was all right. And it got released and... They didn't really kind of get behind it, and it wasn't it, promoted. Super it wasn't heavily. promoted. It was kind of like mm, didn't didn't do maybe that great initially, but then word of mouth started happening, and then it became a smash, and people were standing around the block waiting to get in. They had to have the movie running twenty four hours a day in order to be able to get everybody in to be able to see it. Um, it was huge. That's amazing. It was huge. And, and it made so much money. It made, you know, millions of dollars out, off, off of $150,000 for R- RKO, which is very interesting because it was such a smash hit. Then, of course, they want Luton to, to get another one in there right away. But they also still didn't trust him. They still wanted him to do the universal um, formula. They didn't go, oh, we have the Val Luton formula. But, I mean, even critics like James Agee, were like going, this is art. This this is real art. And it is. It is. And I guess this is something we don't have to talk about too much because anytime you go look for Val Luton, you'll hear about it. But basically, a lot of people love to talk about how he really created a lot of vocabulary in that movie, a lot of horror vocabulary, right? In the way that he cuts things, in the way he doesn't, what he does and doesn't show on screen. Yeah, the cleverness by which he did this so that it didn't, it, it didn't get hokey. Because you're not like looking at a fake cat face 
coming into the screen or anything like that. He was very, very subtle in, in uh, what he showed. So it was the inference rather than the, uh, the actuality that created the suspense. Which is really smart, especially on that budget and not trying to do exactly what Frankenstein and Dracula did, which is just say, like, here's an iconic monster. Um, so basically then the next film that they, um, they wanted him to go into, they said, okay, here's your next title. And what they did is they tried to come up with a title that he could not get around because they had expected him to create cat monsters and cat people who were, you know, like Wolfman, basically. Because the Wolfman had just come out and was a huge hit. So they were thinking, okay, not a wolf, a cat. And it would just be like the Wolfman except a cat. And so he... he, And then he he spun this tale of like old European uh, (laughs) peasant folklore. Uh, Yeah. Exactly. So they go, okay, we're going to come up with one that he can't get around. So they gave him this title, I Walked with a Zombie. title is that though i don't get it i don't understand how they could have created that title and not expected it to be weird like well they they do they expect it to be zombies right and walking and zombies walking around and zombies doing things they wanted zombies baby it's so funny though i walked with a zombie i just i still can't get over that like that it's a funny title. It is. The collaborative nature of it. Like, I, instead of I ran from a zombie. Yeah. Like, something confusing. I was eaten by a zombie or yeah. whatever. I became a zombie. Yeah. Teenage zombies. Right. Yeah. And he's just, like, tearing his hair. He's like, oh, my God. This is, this is horrible. What a horrible title. So what he decided to do was he made a loose adaptation of Jane Eyre. <laughs> yeah, it's very intuitive, right? Yeah. Just, we'll set a- Jane Eyre in the tropics. Yeah. And, uh... It, it's it's a and it, it's a wonderful film. It's I think our favorite Val Luton. So we're gonna end this part here, and you can join us next month for part two of Val Luton's life and filmography. We're gonna talk about a lot of his other really good films. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail dot com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. <laughs> One of the little tidbits about cat people that I enjoy is that there's a, an actor in it who plays their boss, the Commodore, uh, by the name of Jack Holt. And if you look carefully at Jack Holt, you'll be able to see that he actually was the model for Dick Tracy. Um, Dick Tracy of the comics back then, if you look at his face. Mm. I've never <laughs> seen them. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And having been raised, I saw Dick Tracy every Sunday in the, comic, in the comics. So, it's, it's, so if you know Dick Tracy... It's cool. Look at his face. <laughs>